Welcome to Wine Country Women with Michelle Mandreau, the podcast for wine enthusiasts who are curious not only about what goes in the bottle, but the remarkable women who make these distinctive winemaking regions so special. Each week, Michelle introduces you to a prominent woman and takes a peek inside her life. Welcome to today's Wine Country Women podcast. I'm Michelle Mandreau, and I am with Karen McNeil, who is one of the foremost wine experts in the United States and the author of the award-winning book, The Wine Bible, the single best-selling wine book in the United States with over 800,000 copies. She's also the creator and editor of Wine Speed, the top digital newsletter in wine in the U.S. Karen, it is delightful to be sitting down with you on this beautiful fall day. Michelle, wonderful to have you. Thank you. This is fantastic. You know, I always like to ask my guests, what was their first job after college? What was it, Karen? Well, now, I I have to warn you, I, I don't think anyone could probably guess this, but my first um, professional job was as an editor for True Story, True Love, True Secrets, True Romance, and uh, let's see, there was one other true. Um, you know, in those days in New York, of course, before that, I worked as a maid and a busboy in a restaurant. Obviously, I'm a girl, but a bus person in a restaurant. Um, I worked as a receptionist in um, in, a, in an agency, but my first real job where I felt like I I'd broken into publishing was as an associate editor, and in particular, I, I was on the True Secrets team. I got paid, I think my salary was $125 a week. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It was amazing. It was wonderful. <laughs> and that was in New York City? That was in, in New York. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, w- I learned a lot of things from the trues, as they were called. The, the true, you know, the 19, this was the 1970s. The 1980s became the great decade of fantastic magazines. Um, but in the 1970s, those magazines, which were largely um, subscribed to by, you know, women, often poor women in the Midwest and um, actually all over the country, they had an enormous readership. So um, I, I actually learned a lot from the very smart editors who put those magazines out. Can you remember one thing you learned? Well, I, I can tell you one thing I was a failure at. <laughs> I mean, I desperately wanted to be good at titles because um, all of the, every one of the magazines had a top editor and an associate editor. And uh, for the associate editor, if you were good at titles, you got paid an extra $25 a week. I was desperate to be good at titles. I was awful. I never got the $25 extra a week. But all these years later, I suppose, I've, I've occasionally gotten good at titles as well. I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I read somewhere that you began writing about food in the 1980s. You wrote about food for several national magazines, the New York Times. True? Yes, well... 
in addition to <laughs> my daytime job with the Trues, you know, I wanted to be a published writer, and I'm I'm not entirely. I mean, it was a little bit of an illogical dream because, I, I mean, I didn't go to journalism school. I had never taken even a writing class. But every day after work, I, um, you know, I, I would write pieces and send them out as one did in those days. You, you wrote a piece, you put it in, the, in an envelope, you sent it by mail to an editor. And uh, in the process of doing this, I collected over the first few years 324 rejection slips, which I thumbtacked to the wall of my fifth floor walk-up in New York. And one day it occurred to me that, <clears throat> you know, I was writing about everything, politics, women's issues, all kinds of things. Um, so one day it occurred to me that I should try writing about food because I loved food, and I thought, you know, if you write about food, maybe they give you samples occasionally. <laughs> and um, I thought, wow, that would be very cool. And so uh, I did begin excuse me, I did begin writing about food. And in, first, in fact, my first article that actually sold was on food. It was on butter, of all things, artisanal butter. And, um, and from there, um, you know, people who are listening who are writers uh, will recognize the idea that once, you, once you've published one piece, and often it just takes one piece, this was a piece in The Village Voice, I mean, your career then can really skyrocket. So within a few years, yes, I was writing about food for Elle and Mirabella and New York Times and Travel and Leisure and Town and Country and so many of the, the great magazines. But of course, what I secretly wanted to write about was wine. So you have to tell the story because it's, it's a fascinating one. <laughs> Um, about these men who let you join them tasting wine. Yeah, you know, in those days, um, all, all of the wine writing, almost essentially for the entire country, even magazines like Sunset, let's say, that was based on the, on the West Coast, um, there were about five men who controlled all of wine journalism. And and they even were the wine writers on on women's magazines, on magazines like Vogue and Good Housekeeping. It was a very privileged uh, um, thing, I think, for these men because, you know, producers from all over the world would fly into New York to do tastings just for them. So, you know, Monday would be the Chianti Classico producers and Wednesday the Port producers and Friday the Rioja producers and... I, one of those men was a friend of mine, and he knew how desperately I wanted to learn about wine. And we should say as a side box here that in those days it was really hard to learn about wine if you weren't wealthy because, A, you didn't have enough money to buy all the great wines. B, there was no place to learn. There were no wine classes. Even Windows on the World had yet to begin um, its school retailers didn't do wine classes, so there was no way in for a young woman without money. Uh, so anyway, one of my friends knew that I really wanted to learn about wine, and he convinced the other guys to let me taste with them every week. But the deal was I could do it, I could taste with them on the condition that I not talk. 
And so I didn't. I tasted with them every week almost for six years. And um, and I didn't say a word. Now, Which, but you learned a lot. Oh, oh, I would I would take the deal. Even though I'm a f- total feminist, I would take the deal again because, you know, I didn't want to give my opinion. I didn't have an opinion. I was really uh, when it came to wine, I was I was a neophyte. What I wanted to do was ask questions, and um, but in any case, not, not only did I learn a lot just by osmosis being around these men, but I also learned, for which I'm forever grateful, I learned how to be a professional. These men were very serious. They didn't go to a wine tasting and chat. They had their notebooks. They were pretty quiet themselves. They concentrated. They, they comported themselves um, really well and really professionally. And I adopted that behavior. You know, you didn't just in those days kind of, I don't know, go to a wine tasting and hang out. You came dressed, if you were a woman, me, dressed formally, stockings, heels, a suit, and you were, you were, uh, you really paid attention. The, the upshot to this story is that uh, even though I couldn't talk, <laughs> it, it, it had a great outcome because I remembered so clearly all the things that didn't make sense to me, all the things, all the literally hundreds and hundreds of questions I had. And those questions later became the basis for the wine Bible. Mm. At this stage in your life, did one of those men or did someone else become a mentor to your wine career? No. Um, you know, the whole concept of mentors for young women, I think where it was, was not in existence yet, at least not in the wine industry, probably in law and finance, um, there may have been such programs, but if you were a freelance writer, um, who knew very little, <laughs> That no one was 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 lining up to, to be, support you. Yeah, to in fact, they didn't want to support you in a way because you might eventually become their competition. So um, that's that's always been an inherent problem in the wine industry, right? Um, that uh, you, in effect, you are if you're mentoring, you are mentoring someone who may indeed become may want to replace you or become your competition. I think women today are are less worried about that. They are still very generous about mentoring. But back then, um, no man decided to take me under his wing and um, and let me be and let me learn from him. What I did have, though, was a a friend who was a businessman. He he didn't know very much about wine, but he really helped me learn how to be a business person learn how to write contracts, um, learn how to ask for money. And frankly, that's one of the hardest things to learn when you have your own business. When you were sitting with those men and you were like a sponge taking in all that information, you referenced the fact that it was that information that gave you the idea for the Wine Bible? No, it wasn't so much the idea. Um, the The idea for the wine Bible happened because um, 
Well, how did you come up with the idea then? Yes. So I was sitting in my office, in which was my apartment <laughs> in New York, um, one day, and uh, the, t- the phone rang. This is before the internet, right? The phone, before email. The phone, 80s and 90s. <laughs> yes. The, um, the phone rings, and it's Peter Workman. And this person said, hi, I'm Peter Workman. Would you like to have lunch? I, I, of course, nearly fell off my chair because Peter Workman was a legend. He is deceased, but he was a legend in the New York public publishing industry. I, of course, knew who he was, but I had never met him. And, um, I, you know, I fumbled and said, yeah, of course, I want to have lunch with you. And he said, so meet me at this restaurant at noontime today. So I go to the restaurant and... It was a Monday because he had read a piece I had written in the New York Times magazine section on food. It was actually, of all things, on lobster rolls and other kinds of New England sandwiches. Anyway, he said to me, I love the way you write, and I want to publish a book uh, of yours. What book have you always wanted to write? And I thought, what? Wait a minute. This does not happen, right? Anyone... Again, any um, listener who knows about journalism knows that you go for years, you know, knocking on the doors of editors and agents, begging them to let you write a book. So this was all very unreal. And I, I said to Peter, well, if I were to write a book, uh, and I had already written a food book that was published by Random House, but I said, if I were to write another book, you know, I would want it to be on wine, and he said, wine? Hmm, we've never published a book on wine. Workman was famous for cookbooks. They were famous for the Silver Palette cookbook in particular back in those days. So he said, okay, wine, wine it is. Can you have it done in a year? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that first wine Bible took 10 years to write. Uh, and it took 10 years in part because it covered the world but also because it was largely written before the internet. And if you can uh, imagine, how, how did you even know how to get information back then, right? Let's just say you, you needed to know a simple fact. How many wine producers are there in Hungary? H- how did you do that, right? You right. did it by, you started with phone calls. And for me, the way I always started, if I knew very little about a region and hadn't yet been to it, I would call their embassy in Washington. And in fact, among all the embassies, I became known as that wine lady, I think. <laughs> that wine lady called again. And, um, but through embassies, I would be connected to people. It could take, it could take weeks just to find the one person in a country who actually knew how to answer the questions you were asking. So how did you know that that's what you wanted your book to be? Because I, it was the book I wished I had had mm-hmm. when I was learning. I did try to read a lot of books um, when I was learning about wine. Most of the big good books were written by British authors. But you know, they were also a little off-putting. First of all, they were very classist. They were very, um, you know, wine was a uh, a kind of denominator of the of your class, and 
British wine, wine writers in those days would remind you that they had gone to Oxford or Cambridge or that they'd been on the Oxford wine team. And, you know, I think for a lot of Americans, we find that, at least I found that kind of off-putting um, because I certainly hadn't gone to Oxford or Cambridge. But also European books assume a, 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 a very keen familiarity with European geography. And I remember, like, Merceau, Montagny, Mekon, like, where were these places? Were they places inside each other? Were they in whole different parts of France? So um, I, I thought, <laughs> maybe naively, but I thought, I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I should be able to figure this out. But figuring it out was hard and long. Um, I knew all the questions to ask, or at least a lot of them, but I, I knew very few of the answers. And so began this very long journey to write the Wine Bible, which in retrospect, you know, I think, which is was essentially unpaid. It's, it's, it's almost unthinkable today that, that anyone would work on a project unpaid for 10 years. Mm-hmm. 10 years. What's the story behind the name? Yeah. So when I finally finished the book, and and every year Peter Workman would call me up because <laughs> I would ask him for an extension on the deadline, and he would say, okay, just promise me you're not sitting around in your pajamas. <laughs> and I would say, I promise you, Peter, I'm not sitting around in my pajamas. But the, it, it's a bigger book than what you and I originally talked about. So anyway, the day comes. I've got this 5,000-page manuscript. I take a cab down to Workman. I put it on his desk, and he's very quiet for like 20 minutes. He's looking, flipping through the book. And I, you know, I'm in near tears, right? Because I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, what if he doesn't like it? After 10 years. After 10 years, (laughs) right. Um, So he looks up, and he said, it's fantastic, and we're calling it the Wine Bible. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> you can't call it the Wine Bible, Peter. That is a big name. I mean, that like that's that's a big name. I, I like I I don't think you can call it that. And he said, well, obviously you have not read your contract um, very well because the title of a book, and this is true. The title of a book is considered part of the book's marketing. And he said, and you are a subject expert, but you're not a marketing expert. I'm a marketing expert. Um, And so I trusted you. I trust you that what you've put inside this book is right and valuable. And now you have to trust me. So he named it the Wine Bible. And it it was. (laughs) It was therefore the Wine Bible. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. <laughs> and he was, of course, right. I mean, it was it was a brilliant name. So on October the 11th, you released the third edition of the Wine Bible. It's 700 pages on history, food, wineries, flavors of each region, and so much more. Third edition. It only took four and a half years. <laughs> I'm like, I'm twice as fast. Yeah. So what can people expect? I mean, I, I, I gave the highlights. Well, Why should everybody run out and get 
get the third edition of the Wine Bible. Yeah, well, I think if you like wine, the, the, it's, the Wine Bible has an interesting position because there are basic beginner books on wine, very, very, very simple books. And then there are books that are so complicated, essentially you need to be a PhD in organic chemistry to, to read them. And the Wine Bible is one of the only books that traverses those two worlds. You can be a complete beginner, and I promise it, you'll find it fascinating. You know, the sex life of grapes, it's in there. <laughs> um, and, and yet, if you, there's probably very few sommeliers in the country that don't have the Wine Bible, very few wine editors that don't have the Wine Bible. So it's, it's this book that, that spans all knowledge levels. This new edition is bigger, better, all in color. It includes chapters on areas that the first and second didn't, like England, all the great sparkling wines coming out of southern England, and, and Croatia, and a big new chapter on Israel. And one of the my most favorite chapters, although the hardest one to write, Wine in the Ancient World. So it's it's a really fascinating book. And people always told me that they loved all the crazy side boxes on so many things. I mean, there are even more of those this time. So it's the kind of book that people don't read necessarily from cover to cover. They pick it up and start reading anywhere. So it's the perfect book for everyone. It really... It, Who loves wine. I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. Top moment of your career so far? Well, winning the James Beard Award as Wine Professional of the Year um, in 2008, that was, that was a while ago, but that was a really um, highlight for sure. Oh, I, I will tell you a, a very funny story that was a highlight, but it was also... Uh, really made me nervous. Like, I give a lot of presentations in front of groups. And because part of my early career was not just writing, but was radio and television, I learned not to be afraid of microphones, cameras. I'm actually okay on radio and television. Anyway, that led to giving presentations. There could be 100 people in the room. I don't get nervous. Of course, I come with the ultimate prop, wine, right? And right. I know everybody's going to be happy drinking wine. But anyway, this was a big presentation for all of the key leaders of General Electric. And it was at their headquarters in New York. There are 300 people in the room. I know that I'm going to be on it at two. And I know all I know is that there are some number of women, <clears throat> happened to be all women, on before me. So the first person on is Christy Turlington, and I'm the model, and right. I'm thinking, oh, God, of course I have to follow Christy Turlington, right, talking about all of her charities in, um, in Africa. The next person on is Kathy and, is it Lita Hodo, the hosts of NBC's Today Show. Oh, and Hoda. Hoda, yes. And I'm thinking, oh, and they're so much fun. And they've got the crowd really going. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Now I'm after Kathy Lee and Hoda. But I'm still not on yet. And all of a sudden, I'm looking around the audience, and I see that in the back of the room are these men in 
dark suits with headphones on, earphones, and I'm thinking, what is going on? The next guest is Laura Bush. Oh, my goodness. And I'm, now I'm like, oh, you're, you're killing me. I have to follow Laura Bush? Oh, no. Uh, so now I'm getting kind of nervous, nervous. right? <laughs> um, but uh, it turns out that Laura Bush was the perfect person to follow because sweet and kind and mm-hmm. wonderful as Laura Bush is, she talked about her career as a librarian, which... Nothing against librarians, but it was a very uninspiring um, talk. So when I came on with all this wine and a really lively, I think, performance, it was it was great. But that that was a highlight following Laura Bush, even though it was um, <laughs> very nerve wracking. You've been writing about wine for over thirty five years. You've definitely been a major player in the wine industry. What kind of impact do you think you've made? When I, there were so few women in the business when I started um, that I hope that just being in it was was helpful. But I also, I'm a, a serious researcher. I hope that on the one hand, people feel like, okay, here's somebody who will go to great lengths to get information and the right information. You know, some wine writing is is kind of, uh, nobody checks it, there's no editor, you just say what you want to say and sort of that's the end of it. But I think I, I think, you know, I have for myself incredibly high standards about, about research, about accuracy, about authenticity and I mean, as evidenced by spending four and a half years writing a book, right? Four and you, a half. How about ten at the very beginning? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. So I, I hope that uh, the idea that you can have those kinds of standards and still be successful is, is important. And the other th- thing that I hope is true, uh, especially for other people in the business, is, you know, I have a self-created business. No, nobody created Karen McNeil and company, except for me. And, and it's a little idiosyncratic, but I have been in my own business uh, successfully for 35 years. And, um, and I make enough money to hire other people to work with me. And I feel proud of that. You can do that. But it takes, um, takes a little creative thinking now and then. What do you think you're influence or your impact on the industry has been? You know, I hope it's been a very positive one. Before the Wine Bible, there were no big books written by American authors. They were all written by British authors. Um, and and most wine writing, as you heard before, was, was done by men. Mm-hmm. So I think um, one of the things that I brought to wine writing was an American approach and to some extent a female approach. I would say that you are the leading female wine writer, author. Well, that's maybe just because I'm the oldest one at this point. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Well, that's uh, what I would say. I think that you're the most iconic for sure. Favorite wine region right now? One of my, well... You know, I probably have to say Champagne because I do 
even when I was really poor and struggling, I, I have a glass of champagne every night of my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't buy a fancy car. I don't buy fancy clothes. But champagne, uh, uh, that's my one um, indulgence. Vice. Okay. And, uh, so, and it's such an interesting, psychologically interesting region because the wine itself is so joyful and yet the region has a very serious and to some extent tragic um, history, especially during World Wars I and II. So, but, I'm, but I'm also completely enthralled with southern England right now because it's that big limestone crescent from Champagne goes all the way through southern England. And those wines are absolutely um, stunning. If you haven't had English sparkling wine yet, it's really the thing to have. And I'm fascinated by China. My last trip to a wine region before uh, the pandemic was actually to the Himalayas, to the winery Aoyun, 8,000 feet in the Himalayas. Okay, so clearly she she can't just select one favorite right now. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's fine. The holidays are fast approaching. Your favorite holiday pairings? Yeah. I, you know, I think the wine that can carry you through a whole evening with holiday foods is Pinot Noir. The Pinot Noirs being made both in Oregon, in the Willamette Valley, and on the Sonoma coast of California are just so sensational, mm-hmm. so sexy and seductive and and um, beautiful. Even, you know, they're mind trips. They just carry your mind to all new places. It's um, They're also just sheerly delicious with food. Learn more about the women who live in wine country when you purchase one of our lifestyle books at winecountrywomen.com. Well, we're going to shift on to your personal life. If we took a step inside your home, what would we see? What's your decorating style? Oh, my goodness. What's my decorating style? I would say modern with Victorian touches. Mm. <laughs> I don't know how to say that. I mean, for example, every night um, my husband and I have dinner together. We're big cooks. We always have a candle on the table. We always set the table beautifully. Um, so I, you know, part of me thinks that I, um, I, I was born in the wrong century because I love, you know, touches like that, cloth napkins, all those things every night. Um, when you kick back and relax, what kind of music do you like to listen to? I love um, old sort of, I don't know how I would phrase this, but beautiful old Judy Collins um, kinds of music. So almost ballads um, from the 1960s. Joan Baez. I love, I love all that music. You're clearly very busy, but do you have a hobby? Do you collect anything? You know, one of the great loves of being in the food and wine business is that your hobbies are the same as your work. Um, when I'm not, I don't know, tasting or researching something about food or wine, I'm tasting and drinking food (laughs) and wine. Um, uh, yeah, but I do, I'm, I'm really keen on exercising. I exercise a huge amount. 
Um, and what's your, what is your exercise so, routine? Yeah. So I do, um, some yoga in the morning followed by biking, cycling. Um, so and, we can find you on the streets of St. Helena. Uh, no, no, because <laughs> it's a stationary bike. Okay. Yeah. You know, I'm a little afraid to bike in wine country. Um, not because it's not beautiful. It is beautiful, but we, there are a Busy. lot of visitors on the roads and they've just gone in and out of wineries. It's like, no, nah, and there are no right. really good bike lanes yet. What is your secret to a great dinner party? serve a lot of wine. (laughs) I never, uh, you know, unlike, um, I don't think I've ever served one wine with a course. I always, if people are over, serve at least two and sometimes Mm. three different wines because I, I, I want people to, I think the message that there's one wine for one course is not right. And it's much more fascinating at a dinner party if everybody has three different wines for each course, because then, you know, then the conversation gets going. Why do you like wine number one? I love number two. I like that. That's, that's clever. Is there something people might be surprised to learn about you? Something that's not readily um, known? Do you skydive? Yeah. Do you rappel down mountains? Did you do something crazy as a child? No, but I, I mean, I came close to skydiving. Um, the probably the most unusual thing, because I don't know, I have a certain feminine, I suppose, way about me, is that for a time in my early 20s, I lived with the youngest professional gambler in Las Vegas. Yeah. And, and so, <laughs> and, and I was on his schedule. So, you know, we would get up at maybe six or seven at night and be in casinos all night and uh, then come home and go to bed at 10 in the morning. And I would sit in casinos um, studying because I was sort of sending my assignments back to the university I was enrolled in. Um, And I sitting in casinos, taught myself linguistics and wrote all kinds of articles, often sitting behind him at a poker table. Okay. That caught me completely (laughs) off guard. That's incredible and surprising for sure. Well, we're going to wrap things up with five quick questions. They're really lighthearted. What is one of your favorite movies? Um, Out of Africa. Your favorite flower? Roses. One word that best describes you? Intense. What kind of car do you drive? A Lexus SUV. Who would you invite to your dream dinner? Barack Obama. That's it. Karen, it's been a true delight to sit down with you today. Thank you. My pleasure. Visit winecountrywomen.com to join our exclusive list so you can be the first to learn about upcoming offers and events. Grab a glass and join us next week for a new edition of Wine Country Women.